0: Hi. but there's something you can do about it, and we hope you'll join us in D.C. on May 14th to explore the possible pathways out of the current situation. Go to Slate.com slash AmicusLive for tickets.
1: This podcast contains some graphic language and a mention of sexual assault. Nancy Stearns never planned on being a lawyer. She didn't think she was smart enough. But in the early 1960s, she saw something that
2: changed her mind. When I was in college, there was a TV program called The Defenders that was about lawyers who did constitutional cases.
1: The Defenders was a black and white courtroom drama. Long before Law & Order, it told stories ripped from the headlines.
3: What did you see? The doctor was bending over a girl. She was lying on a table, and he was operating on her. Objection! The sergeant is not a medical expert. He doesn't know what the doctor is doing.
1: In one episode from 1962, the lawyers represent a doctor who's on trial for providing illegal abortions. His patients are called to testify.
4: Ms. Stafford, you were the person on Dr. Montgomery's operating table when the police broke into the office? Yes. Did you go to that office for the purpose of obtaining an illegal operation? Yes. I knew
2: people who needed abortions. God knows I went through periods when I wondered whether I would need one.
1: Abortion was not only illegal, it was also taboo to talk about. The Defenders abortion episode was so controversial that some network affiliates refused to air it. But its boldness captivated
2: Nancy. I thought it was the most fabulous show, and I thought it would be so wonderful to be a constitutional lawyer.
1: A few years later, Nancy was one of just a handful of women in her graduating class at NYU.
2: One of the things it was like to be a lawyer in the 60s is there were no ladies' rooms in the courthouses, which was not great, let me tell you. The bathrooms were just part of it. I realized that... I was much more comfortable in a courtroom wearing pants rather than skirts. Of course, some people were appalled, but I wouldn't have to worry about whether the male lawyers or judges were spending their time looking at my legs rather than listening to what I said. Nancy
1: took a job at the Center for Constitutional Rights and started working to overturn state abortion laws. In the summer of 1970, Momentum really seemed to be on her side.
4: Today, in various numbers, in various places, women were out demonstrating for full equality, and some of them were demanding free abortions and 24-hour-a-day child care centers.
1: Nancy earned a national reputation as a pioneering abortion lawyer, and she became known as an ally for women who needed help. In December 1970, she got a handwritten letter postmarked from Florida. It came from a woman who'd had an illegal abortion and had been interrogated by the police.
2: Dear Ms. Stearns, this is December 7th, 1970. The state has threatened me with persecution and have tried to make me tell who I went to and where and said I will make it harder on myself by my unwillingness to cooperate. And then she said, I know you've heard it a hundred times, but if men had to go through pregnancy, it would have been legal years ago, underlined.
1: The woman from Florida said that she had been charged with manslaughter. She'd even been thrown in jail for four days. All of this was extremely unusual. Even though the procedure was illegal, It was typically the people who
2: performed abortions who got in trouble, not the women who received them. I mean, this was somebody just sort of pouring out her heart and was terrified. As the two exchanged more letters, Nancy
1: became convinced she had to do something to help this woman.
5: Now we have Nancy Stearns, a lawyer from New York City, from the Center for Constitutional Rights.
1: In the summer of 1971, she was one of the featured speakers at the first ever gathering of the Women's National Abortion Action Coalition. Women had traveled across the country to join in the fight for abortion rights.
5: In almost every case, the courts are still controlled by old men, basically the same people who are controlling the legislature. And that is a severe problem.
1: Nancy told the crowd about a couple of important court cases. One of them was out of Texas, a case called Roe v. Wade.
5: Because the Supreme Court is going to be dealing with abortion cases in the fall. And our job is basically now to educate them.
1: The plaintiff in Roe v. Wade, Jane Roe, hadn't wanted to be pregnant. But the law in Texas mandated that she give birth anyway. She'd given up the child for adoption but her lawyers argued that the state had still violated her constitutional rights. In 1971, the facts of Roe v. Wade were known, but Jane Roe herself was completely anonymous. That made her story difficult to humanize. So at that conference, Nancy pivoted to another case, the story of the woman from Florida.
5: About a year and a half ago, she needed an abortion.
1: Nancy shared everything she'd learned from the letters about the woman's arrest and how she'd got put behind bars. But that wasn't the worst of it.
2: During
5: the time that she was in jail, the cops came into her cell, showed her pictures of a fetus, said, how can you deny having abortion? Here's your baby. Look at it. This is your baby. She was pretty near hysterical at that point. Last week, I got another letter from her saying, My trial has been set for July 12th. Manslaughter in Florida carries up to a 20-year penalty. Her name is Shirley Wheeler.
1: Shirley Wheeler wasn't a pseudonym on a legal docket. She was a real person, someone the whole abortion rights movement could rally around.
5: What we do here, from this weekend on, is going to make a critical difference as far as what happens to Shirley. We are responsible for keeping her out of jail. We are responsible for Shirley's freedom. And we're also responsible for our own freedom. And that's what we've got to fight about.
1: This is Slowburn Season 7. Roe v. Wade. I'm Susan Matthews. This season, we'll be looking at the years leading up to one of the most important Supreme Court rulings in history. How did abortion become such a divisive issue in American life? Why were the politics back then so dramatically different than they are now? And was it ever really possible for the courts to find a solution? But first, how one unlikely woman for a brief moment became the public face of the fight for abortion rights.
6: I don't claim to know everything about legalizing abortion, but I am proof of what will happen to you if you have an illegal one. In
1: 1970, when abortion was still against the law in most states, Shirley Wheeler, like so many other women, got one anyway. This is episode one, Get Married or Go Home. Shirley Ann Johnson was born in the foothills of North Carolina's Blue Ridge Mountains. Growing up, she never had a stable home life.
8: Not only does she grow up economically disadvantaged, she grows up really abandoned. Catherine Parkin is a history professor at Monmouth University. She had a mother who died when she was just over a year old. She had an alcoholic father who abandoned the family. She'd been taken in by an aunt and uncle, but was really at loose ends with her family and friends.
1: When she was 18, something awful happened to her. She was raped by two men she knew. The rape resulted in a pregnancy. In the aftermath, Shirley felt ashamed and alone. She knew she didn't want to have a baby, but it was 1966 and abortion was illegal. Abortion had been criminalized in America in the 1860s, but those laws weren't seriously enforced until after World War II, when premarital sex was on the rise and women were entering the workforce. As more women sought abortions, particularly young, unmarried women, more states cracked down. By the 1960s, the practice had gone further underground.
5: Most women who want abortions must go around the law, and a million do that in this country every year.
1: Abortions were dangerous, expensive, and hard to find. Shirley was young and poor. She likely had no hope of getting an abortion from a trained professional. Instead, she tried to terminate the pregnancy herself, throwing herself off a porch to try to induce a miscarriage. It didn't work. Shirley carried the pregnancy to term and gave birth to a son. She left him to be raised by her older brother and sister-in-law. And then she tried to move
8: forward. She has a hasty marriage that only lasts a few months. The couple never lived together. She describes it kind of as a mistake that, that they shouldn't really have done. At this point, she decided to leave North Carolina altogether.
1: She moved to Daytona Beach, Florida. It was there that she found some peace and somebody to love.
3: I have a picture of Cheryl in a, a plaid skirt and black blouse. She has boots on. She has a real nice smile in that.
1: Robert Wheeler had moved to Daytona Beach for the waves.
3: I live just a few blocks away from the ocean. There's you know, picture of me with My surfboard, and I was constantly surfing as much as I can get out there.
1: Robert had long hair and a beard. He wouldn't describe himself as a hippie, but he was kind of a renaissance man. He loved listening to classical music. He also painted, did taxidermy, and was an amateur photographer. His girlfriend, Shirley, was his favorite subject.
3: She was an attractive person and easygoing, too.
1: One of his photos of her, it's a striking picture. It's actually the cover art for this podcast. Shirley's at the beach, wearing a floral bikini top and high-rise jeans. Her auburn hair is long and windblown, and her eyes are covered by sunglasses.
3: It was shot low up towards her face. I was probably just trying out a pose.
1: How does she look in that photo?
3: How does she look? Yeah. Well, she always looked good to me.
1: Robert and Shirley lived together in an apartment in a yellow clapboard house. The outside wasn't much to look at, but inside, they hung beads from the doorways and had cotton-printed curtains on the windows. They were mostly homebodies. They watched TV and spent time with their pets—a poodle, a Siamese cat, a rabbit, and a raccoon named Rocky. Whose idea was it to get a raccoon?
3: Oh, well, that was probably mine. but. Uh We took care of the animals together.
1: Shirley was still technically married to another man, but she took Robert's last name. She worked at a wig shop, but she was just part-time because of health problems. After she'd given birth back in North Carolina, she had developed rheumatic fever and became hypoglycemic. Her condition made it hard for her to use birth control. And so, in 1969, Shirley got pregnant again. This time, she was determined to control her own fate.
3: She told me that the doctor recommended never to have a child again. So that was a big uh, part of her life is that she knew that she could have problems with her health if she went ahead and uh, had gone full term.
1: So she decided to terminate the pregnancy, but it wouldn't be simple. Abortion providers took all kinds of precautions to protect themselves from arrest and prosecution. Often, patients wouldn't know their names or even see them. Women would be told to wait on a street corner to be picked up and then be blindfolded once they got in the car. All of this would be terrifying enough, but many women had to deal with worse. Here's how one couple described their experience in 1965
5: operation was performed in the kitchen of the motel using some of the kitchen equipment. He turned to my husband and said, how can you expect me to take dangers like this myself for such a low fee?
3: it wasn't clear that he would go ahead and finish the operation if I didn't pay him the extra money. But I didn't uh, at that time want to argue or even, of course, uh, delay the procedure.
1: When Shirley was six weeks pregnant, she found a doctor in Jacksonville, nearly two hours away. That doctor would do the procedure for $400. That's about $3,000 today. Shirley never said much about the experience, possibly because she'd been blindfolded during it. All we know for certain is that the abortion worked. About a year later, Shirley got pregnant again, she knew she would get another abortion, but this time she had trouble raising the money. It was weeks before she could schedule it. Once she
8: did, she went through the whole thing over again. Katherine Parkin. She goes to Jacksonville, that kind of harrowing journey, being blindfolded and, and so on. Shirley had a soft rubber catheter
1: inserted into her uterus. It was a common abortion technique the
8: catheter was supposed to press against the cervix, just enough to induce a miscarriage. It doesn't work. The catheter that they placed doesn't trigger the abortion. And she waits another month before she's able to go back and have the procedure repeated. And it's that second attempt that results in the bleeding. Bleeding out
1: was a common cause of death for women who had illegal abortions. Shirley knew she had to go to a hospital. Though most doctors wouldn't perform abortions, they would help women after they'd had one. The doctors did help Shirley. They stopped the bleeding. But Shirley's ordeal wasn't over. After she got home from the hospital, police officers showed up at her and Robert's door.
8: It's not entirely clear how they knew what Shirley had done. In one account, some orderlies were in a restaurant and talking about it and are overheard by an off-duty police officer who then starts to investigate the
4: charges. Uh, so I'm not really sure how she was arrested, whether it was done by the police or perhaps I could have made that decision. My name is Horace Smith Jr., and in 1971, I was assistant state attorney, working mainly in Volusia County, Florida.
1: Horace Smith still practices law in Daytona Beach. Neither of us could track down the original police report from Shirley Wheeler's case, but more than 50 years later, he still remembers it landing on his desk.
4: Usually, we only hear about cases after someone's arrested. This case was not that way. There had been at least one other death in the area. And I think there had been some other young ladies who had been hospitalized because of illegal and improper abortions.
1: That's why Horace thinks the police showed up at Shirley and Robert's apartment, to get her to tell them who'd performed her abortion. But Shirley wouldn't say anything. I'm not sure if that's because she didn't want to tell or if she honestly didn't know. But if she didn't tell out of principle, that would have been pretty normal. Women rarely sold out the doctors and nurses who'd helped them when they were in such desperate need. The cops responded to Shirley's refusal by putting her in jail. According to a news account, Shirley got dizzy and fainted her first night behind bars. The officers amped up the pressure, showing her photos of what they said was her aborted fetus. They kept her in jail for four days, but Shirley wouldn't budge. In one of her first letters to the lawyer, Nancy Stearns, Shirley wrote, I don't want to tell who did it, even if it does make it easier on me.
2: They basically said, if you'll tell us the doctor, we won't prosecute you, and she said no.
1: It seemed like the police were just trying to scare Shirley. Even though abortions were illegal in most of the country, it was still basically unheard of for a woman to be prosecuted for getting one. It would be up to Horace Smith to decide if Shirley Wheeler would be the exception to that rule.
4: I've never worked on an abortion case before or after, and I didn't consider this an abortion case. I looked at it as a manslaughter case.
1: I was curious if it would have been the abortionist or Shirley who would be responsible for the death in your eyes?
4: Who's responsible for it? Yeah. Well, I think both of them are, Uh, absolutely. If she is going to kill a fully formed, viable child, then she is certainly responsible and if someone is helping her do it, they're certainly responsible. That's just uh, common sense.
1: Shirley's only previous scrape with the law was an $18 fine for cussing out a policeman who had given her a ticket for
2: jaywalking.
1: Now, she was facing a felony charge and serious prison time.
2: She wrote to me in April 1971, I apologize for not contacting you in so long, but I really have been out of it, in quotes. I went to court once for arraignment, But then I got sick and had to postpone the trial. She says, damn it, I'm not, underlined, a criminal.
1: These letters provide some of the only insight into how Shirley was feeling at the time. I couldn't talk to her myself because she died of a heart attack in 2013. In the letters, she keeps restating what happened to her, as if she can't believe it. She says she's terrified of going back to jail and she's angry at the people who want to put her there. She writes, Men make up all rules, which to me is very unfair. By 1971, those rules were starting to change. Several states had loosened their abortion laws. But Shirley didn't feel optimistic. She wrote to Nancy, Things are so much slower here in the South. But Shirley's life was about to change in ways she never anticipated. She'd soon be thrust into the national spotlight. Her face splashed across newspapers around the country. And for some women, she'd become an example of what they were fighting for and why. We'll be back in a minute. On July 10th, 1971, more than 200 women came to Washington, D.C. for the first ever meeting of the National Women's Political Caucus. Betty Friedan, Shirley Chisholm, and Bella Abzug were there. So was Gloria Steinem.
5: We are talking about a society in which there will be no roles other than those chosen or those earned. This is no simple reform. It really is a revolution. Just two days later,
1: Shirley Wheeler entered the Volusia County Courthouse to stand trial for manslaughter. She was represented by a male public defender. Nancy Stearns followed the
2: case from afar. I did not know Florida criminal law. I didn't want to give her big constitutional theories when she was facing a criminal statute which could put her in jail for 20 years.
1: Even though Nancy couldn't represent Shirley herself, she learned everything she could about Florida's abortion law.
2: It's Section 782.10. Every person who shall administer to any woman pregnant with a quick child. Any medicine, drug, or substance, whatever, or shall use that or law employ
1: dated back to 1868. It said that abortion was only allowed to preserve the life of the mother, of the child, or if two doctors said it was necessary. But otherwise, necessary an abortion meant the woman could be deemed guilty of manslaughter. That's the statute. To prove that Shirley's abortion counted as manslaughter, the prosecution would have to demonstrate one key point.
2: First of all, they have to prove that the child is quick.
1: We don't really use the term anymore, but quickening is the moment when a pregnant woman feels fetal movement. It doesn't happen on a set schedule. The typical range is 16 weeks on the early side and 24 weeks on the later side. Quickening used to be the dividing line between when terminating a pregnancy was acceptable and when it was out of bounds. Fetal movement was one of the biggest points of contention in Shirley's trial. Shirley said that she never felt it. But Horace Smith found that hard to believe.
4: From my memory, which once again is 50 years old, here we had a baby, I think seven and a half, maybe eight months pregnant. This was a viable child that would have survived.
1: On this point, Horace's memory seems off. Fifty years ago, the county medical examiner testified that Shirley had been 23 weeks pregnant, not anywhere close to seven and a half or eight months. But Horace must have believed that even 23 weeks was far enough along to prosecute. During the trial, he entered photographs of the fetus into evidence. He was trying to convince the jury that the pregnancy was so advanced that Shirley must have felt fetal movement. According to one news account, Horace later told the court, we are not speaking of a soulless blob of protoplasm. Our records showed a very well-formed, for lack of a better word, baby. A reporter heard Shirley whisper a reply, tri-fetus. Shirley Wheeler's trial lasted two days. The three men and three women on the jury took just 45 minutes to reach a verdict. Guilty. Shirley had cried earlier in the trial, but now she was quiet. According to the New York Times, she was believed to be the first American woman ever held criminally responsible for submitting to abortion.
8: Women are told, don't worry, it's never going to be you. It's going to be the person who does the abortion. And here's a case where women are being told, actually, no, we're coming for you, too. —
1: For prosecutor Horace Smith, Shirley's conviction had been unfortunate but necessary. He told me that he thought it had protected other women from the danger of illegal abortions.
4: The good part of the whole thing is that we had no more deaths.
1: So do you think that that was related to what happened with Shirley?
4: Well, if all of a sudden I have a death by someone who has a coat hanger up their vagina, which has infected them to such an extent that they die, and then after... She's arrested and prosecution. No longer does this occur anywhere in the entire county. I've got to believe that that had to be a deterrent on someone.
1: Shirley was now facing a sentence of up to two decades in prison. Just a few days after the verdict, Nancy Stearns raised the alarm about Shirley's case at that first conference of the Women's National Abortion Action Coalition.
5: Her name is Shirley Wheeler. Wheeler, I'm hoping that before the conference is over, we will have petitions drafted to go to the governor, to go to the judge, and mostly to go to Shirley to say how we feel about all of this and to give our support to her and to express our anger at the state of Florida.
1: While Shirley awaited her sentencing, Wonak and other groups drafted messages of support. Even the Playboy Foundation, the philanthropic arm of Playboy, yes, that Playboy, sent a hotshot lawyer to work on an appeal. Suddenly, a lot more people knew Shirley
6: Wheeler's name. Uh, the front page is a picture of her with her dog, and the headline is Daytona Woman in a Legal Storm Over Her Abortion. That's Molly Sinclair. She wrote that article for the Miami Herald. To put my magnifying glass on here, maybe. Uh, The dateline is Daytona Beach, and uh, it says Shirley Ann Wheeler seems an unlikely choice to be the center of a controversy that has included such diverse elements as feminist groups, the Playboy Foundation, Volusia County legal authorities, and Florida's century-old abortion law. As Mrs. Wheeler puts it, I don't smoke. I don't use drugs, I'm not a hippie, and I don't throw wild parties. How do you feel reading those lines today? I, I think it's pretty good. <laughs> good lead.
1: <laughs> Molly wrote for the women's section of the newspaper, which traditionally covered what she calls the four Fs, food, fashion, family, and furnishings. But in 1971, she started getting meteor assignments. One of those was the Shirley Wheeler case. Molly learned that Shirley's conviction had rested on a disputed claim, that Shirley had felt her fetus move. So Molly started her own investigation. How far along had Shirley really been in her pregnancy? Molly had an idea of how to
6: find out. It occurred to me that if there was a death certificate for the fetus, which the state had prepared, maybe it would have the weight So I specifically talked to the police about the death certificate, which was actually sealed. wasn't supposed to be public. And uh, I remember the guy said, oh, well, you can get that from so-and-so at such-and-such a number. And to my surprise, the woman answering the phone who had the death certificate told me it was 14 ounces. 14 ounces, that's less than a pound. Given that
1: weight, The pregnancy was likely around 20 weeks along. That finding helped bolster Shirley's claim that she hadn't felt fetal movement. The lawyer from Playboy thought it would help them get a new trial, but the judge wasn't having it. The manslaughter conviction would stand. All that was left to decide was Shirley's sentence. Horace Smith remembers that the courtroom was packed. Dozens of people were turned away at the door.
4: As I recall, there were protesters outside. I think Gloria Steinem was outside.
1: I don't think Gloria Steinem was actually there. But this was a big moment. Shirley Wheeler was the first woman in America to be held criminally responsible for having an abortion. Everyone was waiting to see how she would be punished. On October fifteenth, 1971, the judge issued his ruling, two years probation, In some ways, that was a relief for Shirley. No prison time. But the terms of the probation were highly unusual. Historian Catherine Parkin
8: again. She could not live alone or with another woman in Florida. She could not live out of wedlock with a man in Florida because it was against the law.
1: Shirley needed to marry her boyfriend, Robert Wheeler,
8: or leave the state. The Village Voice reported that Ms. Wheeler was told the next time she goes to bed with a man, she had better make sure she has a marriage license hanging over it.
2: The male judiciary was exceedingly sexist. Nancy Stearns. So on that level doesn't shock me at all that they would basically be treating her like a child and say, all right, you are the one who had the abortion. But if you get married, we're gonna, you're, it's going to be OK. But she was in her 20s. It's not like she was a teenager. Shirley and Robert were still living together.
1: And he'd recently gone so far as to get a vasectomy.
3: I just got it done because we didn't want to go through another abortion in Cheryl's health.
1: Robert and Shirley didn't want to break up. But Shirley had gotten married quickly once before back in North Carolina, and it hadn't worked out. At age 23, she had no interest in going through that again. But now, based on the terms of her probation, they couldn't live as they had been, as an unmarried couple in that little apartment by the beach. In October of 1971, Shirley made her choice. She was going back home.
3: That's the part... (sighs) that I can't figure out because I thought our relationship was pretty good.
1: Robert remembers driving her up to North Carolina in his van and driving back to Florida alone. They'd see each other again, but their relationship wouldn't last.
3: I've kind of always wondered about that, and it seems the best I can tell is that we lost touch with each other. And why that happened, I don't know. Certainly the legal part of it, it didn't help it.
1: Yeah, do you think that that put stress on the relationship?
3: Well, I think it did. It, well, and then, of course, the question would be, did she think there was something more I could do? So, you know, I just, I just don't know.
1: In an article from around this time, Shirley said, I just hate to be forced to leave. If I ever saw two people that were happy, it's us. Let's take a quick break. I wanna take a break to acknowledge the International Women's Media Foundation, the global nonprofit that funds and supports women and non-binary journalists. They saw the value of our reporting, and dove in early to make Slowburn's seventh season possible. The IWMF has enabled this type of work for more than 30 years, and they can use your support too. Check them out at iwmf.org, or go follow them on social media to learn more. After Shirley Wheeler got sentenced in Florida, the judge gave her a week to leave the state. He pushed her to go back to where she'd grown up and start a whole new life. But for Shirley, North Carolina didn't feel like home anymore. She moved in with her brother and sister-in-law, but she felt judged by everyone in town. She told a reporter, I know a lot of people think I'm a slut or a murderess. Shirley was miserable. She felt trapped. But she was about to get drafted into a much larger movement.
7: Women's Liberation, the Unfinished Revolution of American Women, with ABC News correspondent Marlene Sanders.
5: Fifty years ago, women got the vote. Today, the things women want are more complex. Those involved in what has come to be known as the Women's Liberation Movement do not necessarily agree on all of the objectives. One of the unifying issues of the movement has been the goal of repeal of abortion laws throughout the nation.
1: By the early 1970s, women's groups were bubbling up everywhere, and several were focused on abortion. One of those was NARAL, which originally stood for the National Association for the Repeal of Abortion Laws. Another was the Jane Collective, an underground group out of Chicago that learned how to perform abortions themselves. And then there was WONAC, the Women's National Abortion Action Coalition. In July 1971, Nancy Stearns had told the first WONAC conference about Shirley Wheeler and the urgency of her case. Four months later, WONAC organized big rallies in San Francisco and Washington, D.C. They were touted as the first national protests for abortion rights. —
6: We're the New Haven Women's Liberation rock band, and we're really... (laughs) 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 We're really quite thrilled and overwhelmed to be here today on this historic occasion.
5: We are going to win. We've got to be together and fight. We want to welcome all of our sisters here from Texas, Florida, Ohio, Connecticut, Michigan. How many other states we got out here? By this point,
1: states including Hawaii, Alaska, Washington, and New York had liberalized their abortion laws. Others, including North Carolina and Colorado, were moving in that direction. But the 3,000 women marching in D.C. that day weren't satisfied. They didn't want to live in a country where abortion access was left up to the states. They wanted it to be legal everywhere.
5: The women who organized this demonstration are eminently more qualified to determine our rights than the nine old men who sit on the Supreme Court.
1: They were carrying signs that said, we demand free abortion, and babies are not our only business. And they were shouting about how fed up they were, with a country that didn't seem to care about them, and with laws that treated them like second-class citizens.
5: These abortion laws have nothing to do with murder. These abortion laws have to do with keeping women
1: in chains. Abortion wasn't their only concern they also talked about forced sterilization.
5: So what does this mean? It means that we are against racist laws proposed in some states which stipulate that welfare mothers must be sterilized after they have had a certain number of children.
1: Forced sterilization didn't just happen after women gave birth. Women also got sterilized when they went to the hospital suffering from the aftermath of illegal abortions. Often, these procedures were performed without consent.
7: What uh, in Spanish is called la operación, la operación, the operation. That's how people would talk about it in the community. Did you have the operation?
1: That's Pat Romney. Her organization, the Third World Women's Alliance, was focused on the needs of women of color. According to one study the mortality rate for non-white women from illegal abortions was 12 times higher than for white women. A few years before Pat became an activist,
7: she'd gone through her own illegal abortion. You know, over 50 years later, I still don't know exactly what happened to me. Pat had been
1: referred to a nurse who performed the procedure in a dark apartment. As far as Pat knew, the woman put a clamp on her uterus. She was then sent
7: home to miscarry. I went to the bathroom, you know, bleeding, and and the embryo expelled in in some way. All you know, really hush hush, not having certainly told my father who I was living with, and having to be really quiet about, you know, the pain I was experiencing. It was only later,
1: after she'd given birth to her first child,
7: that she realized she'd essentially gone through labor. I had never talked to anybody who had an abortion one on one to know what it would be like. It was all the fear that was driven by my ignorance of what I was going through. But now, Pat wasn't
1: alone. She was part of a national movement.
5: are talking about abortion, going to change the law. The
1: women who came to D.C. in November 1971 had developed a shared understanding of what reproductive freedom meant. They called out the government, the Catholic Church, and what one speaker referred to as the so-called right-to-life people. And they invoked one woman's name over and over again.
5: Never again will a Shirley Wheeler face a 20-year prison term. Has not heard of the name
6: of Shirley Wheeler.
5: And we'll see to it that Shirley Wheeler is remembered not as the first woman ever convicted of having an abortion, but that Shirley Wheeler is the last woman ever to be convicted for having an abortion, Shirley Wheeler.
1: Shirley Wheeler herself spoke that day in Washington, D.C. It was just a month after she'd been banished to North Carolina. Hi. You really make me feel good. Her voice sounds a bit tentative. It was the first rally she'd ever attended.
6: But her message was clear. Sisters, we must unite to fight for the repeal of our restrictive abortion laws. I have been labeled a criminal by this society. The state of Florida is the criminal, not me. <laughs> I am appealing my conviction because I would hate to see another one of my sisters go through the living hell that I have. Thank you.
8: People could imagine themselves as Shirley, as a, a person who took this action, um, and it could have been them, and it could have been their sister, or their daughter, or their neighbor.
1: The Shirley Wheeler case wasn't just a sad story. It gave women something to be angry about and someone to advocate for. Katherine Parkin points out that many of the newspaper articles about Shirley
8: included her photo. This is a really sharp contrast to Roe in Roe v. Wade, in which women appear with pseudonyms and are not shown, are not known.
1: Jane Roe remained anonymous, but she did get her day at the Supreme Court.
4: We'll hear arguments in number 18, uh, Roe against uh, Wade.
6: Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the court. The, the
1: justices heard oral arguments in Roe v. Wade on December 13, 1971. It would take them more than a year to issue a ruling. At the same time, Nancy Stearns was working on her own appeal to the Florida Supreme Court. She was finally representing Shirley herself. Early in 1972, that court struck down the state's abortion law, calling it vague, indefinite, and uncertain.
2: Immediately after I knew that the statute had been struck down, I filed papers asking that her conviction be reversed.
1: Nancy's motion was granted, and Shirley's sentence was vacated. In the fall of 1972, more than two years after it began, Shirley's case was over. No more probation, no one telling her where she could or couldn't live.
2: I mean, as it turned out, it wasn't we that freed Shirley. It was the good fortune that the Florida Supreme Court struck down their abortion statute. But we helped to give her the strength to continue the fight she was carrying on to make sure that it wouldn't happen to other women.
1: After her big speech in Washington, D.C., Shirley Wheeler spoke at another rally in Boston, and she kept talking to the press. But as soon as her case was over, she withdrew from public life. Shirley ended up staying in North Carolina and eventually remarried. When she died in 2013, she requested no public funeral services. Shirley Wheeler's story helped fuel the fight for abortion rights in America. Now, hardly anyone remembers her name. I think that's because her story isn't the type we normally celebrate. Shirley didn't want to be a mother. She gave up her only child and she had more than one abortion. But the women chanting Shirley's name in 1971 didn't think Shirley had anything to be ashamed of. They believed every woman deserved the right to control her own body. And they knew there were Shirley Wheelers everywhere. What do you hope people who are hearing about Shirley's story for the first time, what do you hope they take away from it?
2: That it could happen today. That it is happening today.
1: Next time on Slow Burn, a Catholic power couple who helped ignite the Right to Life movement.
6: You look at these fully formed babies and your heart just sinks and you think, these aren't blobs of tissue, these are, these are babies.
1: Later in the series, a Yale Law student fights against her state's
7: abortion law. I had had an illegal abortion and it was after he had done the abortion that I learned that another woman had died. And that stark reality hit me like a punch in the gut.
1: And the story of a rookie Supreme Court justice appointed by Nixon, who got assigned the opinion of a lifetime.
4: Frankly, when they decided the case, they were all of one mind that they had solved this issue once and for all.
1: The rest of Slowburn Burn Roe v. Wade is available exclusively to Slate Plus subscribers. Subscribe now by clicking Try Free at the top of the Slow Burn show page on Apple Podcasts. Or visit slate.com slash Plus to get access wherever you listen. By subscribing to Slate Plus, not only will you unlock the entire season of Slow Burn Roe v. Wade, You'll also get full access to all your favorite Slate podcasts, all ad-free. Slowburn is produced by Samira Chazari, Sophie Summergrad, Sol Worthen, and me, Susan Matthews. Derek John is Senior Supervising Producer of Narrative Podcasts. Editorial direction by Josh Levine, Derek John, and Johanna Zorn. Merit Jacob is our technical director, with mixing assistance by Kevin Bendis. Our theme music was composed by Alexis Quadrado. Derek Johnson did our cover art based on a photo provided by Robert Wheeler. We had research help from Bridget Dunlap and production help from Madeline Ducharme. Some of the audio you heard in our show comes from the Wonak records from the Wisconsin Historical Society. This reporting was supported by the International Women's Media Foundation's Howard G. Buffett Fund for women journalists. Slowburn is a production of Slate Plus, Slate's membership program. You can sign up for Slate Plus to hear a bonus episode every week of this season. We'll go behind the scenes and you'll get access to some exclusive interviews that'll explore more about the history of Roe and abortion in America. In this week's bonus episode, you'll hear about the Defenders, a TV show that convinced Nancy Stearns to become a lawyer. The episode about abortion showed up on Mad Men. We'll tell that story. To listen to that, head over to slate.com/slowburn to sign up now. And right now, we're offering 50% off an annual membership, only until June 15th. We couldn't make Slow Burn without the support of Slate Plus, so please consider becoming a member at slate.com/slowburn. And if you're looking for breaking news analysis of everything going on with the Supreme Court right now, you should subscribe to Slate's legal podcast, Amicus, hosted by Dahlia Lithwick. Amicus has new episodes every Saturday this month to tell you all about the major decisions being released this SCOTUS term. And there will be special episodes for Slate Plus members, too. Find Amicus wherever you listen. Special thanks to Leslie Regan, Ruth Zielinski, Talia Blake, Claire Reynolds, Lynn Paltrow, Sherry Chesson, Barbara Roberts, Matilde Zimmerman, Ron Sachs, Ronnie Clemmer, Laura Bennett, Rachel Strom, and all the women of Wonak. And special thanks to Slate's Rebecca Onion, Mark Joseph Stern, Christina Catarucci, Evan Chung, Seth Brown, Chow Tu, Bill Carey, Katie Rayford, Lohan Liu, and Alicia Montgomery, Slate's VP of audio.
0: Thanks for listening. We'll see you next week. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile, and the ones who get in early
4: so everyone can go home on time, there's Granger, offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus.